0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, the Grants Podcast. This is coming to you from uh, number two, Wall Street, of which more in a moment. And uh, with me is the deputy editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz, famed securities analyst. We are delighted to be with you, and I hope you're happy to be with us. Um, Oh, yes, uh, uh, the word from the sponsor, which is uh, us, Grants Interest Rate Observer uh, wants you. In fact, we need you. We would like you to subscribe. And to do that, all you have to do is go to the website, and actually you're probably on it right now, and uh, click a couple of clicks. And uh, you are then a member of kind of an intimate, all too intimate, an intimate group of thoughtful investors who delight in the free play of ideas and in the reading of pretty refined prose and in the uh, thought of the analysis that Evan, for instance, inserts into every issue. We run to 12 pages and we uh, look for the best and the worst that Wall Street produces. We like to go long the best and short the worst. And topics are eclectic and the, uh, I don't know, I think it's kind of a delightful publication. If, and I would subscribe too, unless, and except I get it for free, you know, editing it. So. But please do subscribe and uh, please do visit the site. And I don't know, I, I, I think you'll be happy if you do. Now, Evan, here we are. In the midst of what is meant to be a uh, a confidence-shattering event for the Federal Reserve, Jeffrey Lacker, the president of the Richmond Fed, is, uh, has stepped down. Uh, he uh, said that he was implicated in a leak concerning sensitive Fed data back in what 2012. I think so. Yes. Um, and I, what I thought, and I think you have a different view, what I thought reading this news yesterday, which is treated as very hot news and treated as very significant for the Fed's, uh, um, the Fed's uh, I don't know, reputation or stature or whatever reputation might constitute, uh, what I thought is that uh, this is the least of it. The problem with the Fed is not the occasional indiscretion, which uh, happens. Who of us has not been indiscreet at some point? But uh, what the problem is, to me that the Fed is uh, in the business of a kind of a uh, seat-of-the-pants central planning, masquerading, mind you, masquerading as central banking. Now, Evan, what is your take on the Jeffrey Lacker news?
1: Well... I think it comes at a particularly bad time for the Fed. One, we're kind of in a populist moment where leaks like this and kind of impropriety go down badly. Lacker's letter suggests that he confirmed the leak rather than was the source of it, so there's at least one other leaker who was or is currently on the, the, the Fed. I think it's a bad time for the Fed in general. We, we take everything the Fed does now kind of for granted. Um, The Fed's using two tools right now to raise interest rates. One, the reverse repo facility, and the other, interest on reserves. The Fed only gained congressional right to pay interest on reserves in 2008. Congress in 2015 actually raided the Fed's capital account in order to fund a highway bill. I think this coming out right now in the midst of the current political environment you know, could lead to Congress doing more things to circumscribe what the Fed can actually do. And it also comes at a bad time for the, the Board of Governors. Um, there's currently two empty seats. Trillo is stepping down today, which means Donald Trump could tomorrow, if he chose to, propose three new Fed governors and, you know, alter policy.
0: Yeah. He could indeed, and my suspicion is that the people he will appoint will be those who will advance the administration's agenda, which is one of reflation of growth, of employment, and of a certain amount of America firstness. And uh, during the campaign, the, the uh, now-president, then-candidate Trump, was, uh, was, was kind of teasing the hard-money uh, contingent by saying that uh, he, for one, would welcome a gold standard. So he said, uh, but I think that when decision time does come, that he will favor the standard that every self-interested, leveraged New York City real estate speculator has always favored, which is one of low interest rates, abundant credit, um, and uh, lenient lending. I think that that will be the way forward with the administration and the Fed. The stock market is uh, is on rather a roll, and uh, I think it was you, have who pointed out in the issue of grants that is forthcoming, that the uh, the ten year rolling uh, price earnings ratio, the, the one that Professor Schiller has um, created, shows a uh, reading that is on the high side, twenty nine plus times ten year trailing earning earnings, in that. Uh, is lower to be sure than the uh, Alpine reaches of December 1999 with 44 odd times trailing 10-year earnings. But it's it's within uh, hailing distance of the awful and uh, legendary September 1929 reading of 32.6 times trailing earnings, 10-year earnings. It's my experience when people f- start talking about 1929, that's not the top. <laughs> Uh, So I don't mean to suggest that uh, because we are knocking on the door of of the September 1929 10-year trailing price earnings ratio, that uh, uh, this is some moment at which one ought to expect an imminent collapse. Uh, But um, working as we do, Evan, in number two, Wall Street, we are from time to time reminded of the events of 1929. Uh, I personally have taken a great interest in this. I wrote a book once called Money of the Mine, which was a chronicle of, among other things, of the life and career of a man named George F. Baker, George Fisher Baker, who was the uh, progenitor with some partners of a bank called the First National Bank, which I think in 1955 was absorbed into what is today Citigroup. But in the day, the First National Bank, headquartered right here in these monetary bones of our building, First National Bank was the greatest most substantial, most profitable and the safest bank in America. And its safety, uh, uh, well, the testament to its safety was that in the depths of the scary 1931-32 depression, the Bank of England opened an account not at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, but right here at two Wall Street uh, with the first National bank and it uh, deposited something like $50 million. They called the X account. Nobody was allowed to speak about it publicly. It was that discrete it was that secret and uh, discretion was uh, was uh, demanded of the staff and they kept the secret. and uh, so that's the first national bank. And uh, George F. Baker was the great old man of this institution. And um, in 1929, George F. Baker got it into his head that the call money rate, that is the Fed funds rate of his day, the call money rate, the overnight basic money market lending rate, was too high. It was 7 8.5%. Uh, banks in the uh, regional cities and the countryside were sending money to Wall Street to partake of these fabulous interest rates. Uh, meanwhile, they're earning like 4% on their own businesses lending to the call market and Wall Street at 75 or 8 And people took notice and they were worried about it. And George F. Baker was not worried about it. He was a great bull. He was a perennial, lifelong bull, didn't care a jot. For the cyclical downturns, he was an optimist. He was an American, and he believed that uh, every single pullback in American prosperity would be temporary and would be followed by a still greater upsurge. That was George Baker. So, in 1929, George F. Baker gets into a tiff with the Fed. George Harrison was the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, then as now the flagship branch, and. Uh, The First National Bank was a massive borrower at the discount window of the New York Fed. $50 million or so was borrowing, far more than any other bank. These funds relent into the call money market, thereby thwarting the New York Fed's attempt to raise call money rates high enough to damper what was evidently a speculative blow-off in the stock market. Now, Baker didn't think it was a speculative blow-off. He thought it was a pretty darn good market. His whole family was leveraged. Indeed, uh, George F. Baker's personal physician had a margin account with the bank. The doctor finally achieved a personal balance in this account, up $700,000, which was real money in the year 1929. He wanted it out. George F. Baker said, no, you must stay. And when at length the doctor lost just about everything, Baker came through with a million-dollar donation to the doctor's foundation. So Baker would not be deterred. He, he believed in America. He believed in its growth. He believed in the destiny of the American enterprise to achieve ever higher highs and ever less significant lows. And to implement this idea in the financial markets of 1929, Baker took out massive loans from the New York Fed. As I mentioned, and and with these loans, he uh, he infused the call money market in an attempt to tamp down the quoted rate on call loans. This thwarted the intent of the Fed. And one day, George L. Harrison, who was a former clerk to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, had succeeded Benjamin Strong in the most important post in the Fed, that is, the governorship of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. One day, George Harrison came to call on the elder statesman, George F. Baker. And uh, Harrison was ushered into Baker's office, uh, beckoned to sit down, which he did. The two began to talk. Um, uh, Presently, uh, the time came for Harrison to leave. There had been nothing decisive spoken of. Harrison wanted Baker to know that he was not pleased with the bank's borrowing. One o'clock came... uh, Baker's secretary came in to conclude the meeting. Uh, Baker waved him off. No, stay, Baker commanded Harrison. So here is what Harrison wrote in his diary about this meeting. Just then, Baker asked uh, his assistant uh, what call money then was. He received the reply that that shortly before it advanced from 7.5% to 8% and that $18 million was wanted in the market. Mr. Baker immediately turned to me, more or less laughingly, and asked whether we had taken uh, some $50 million out of the market, saying that no one else in the circumstances could have advanced the call money from 7.5% to 8%. I laughed and told him that it was only demonstrated how futile it was for one bank to attempt to lower call money to 6% under pressing conditions. Mr. Baker, this is, again, Harrison relating the conversation. Mr. Baker was very quiet for a few moments and then said that perhaps he was wrong and others were right, but that he still was not convinced, that he thought that he could not, could and should ease money, if possible, to 6%. For a period of almost a minute, he sat looking at me and then said, quote, if you were not here, I would tell this man to put out an additional 10 million, but in the circumstances, knowing how you feel, I do not think I shall. So that was Baker at a time when um, a single bank was capable of influencing financial events in opposition to the Fed. Uh, It was a different world and Baker wasn't quite aware of how different it was going to be. So um, Baker watched the uh, gathering financial clouds with perfect equanimity if the excesses of the time were obvious to others, they were lost on him. He was then full of years and honors. He he went on to endow, indeed, to build the Harvard Business School. This is about the same, same era, late twenties. Uh, he named the library the Baker Library. He received a Doctorate in Honor of Laws. He thought, did Baker, that the world was just fine the way it was. Once uh, one of the officers of the bank, named Harry Sturgis. Uh, decided that one of the public utility holding company stocks in the bank's security subsidiary was fantastically overvalued. And he went to the underwriter, and the underwriter said, yeah, it is. And uh, so he sold it, did Sturgis. And uh, when Baker found out, he made him, Sturgis, appear to defend himself, defend this decision. And and, and Sturgis did. He said, look, the stock is, is absurdly overvalued. The underwriters say so. The underwriters say so. I sold it. Baker directed him to buy it back. So there seems to have been no question that Baker was perfectly lucid. He happened to be very bullish. His son, seeing that the, quote, entire Baker family was sitting on a huge margin account, uh, sent the old man's personal assistant, companion, and valet, Frank Rasefi, for one last appeal. Baker heard him out. And then said, did Baker, they are afraid, but they don't understand. As long as Charlie Mitchell and Al Wiggin, those are the heads of the National Bank and Citibank, are on the job, nothing is going to happen. Don't worry. So after the collapse, Baker said two things, one of them touching and one of them very wise. Once forgetting the magnitude of things, he addressed his assistant, Frank uh, Recevi. Frank, if I were a younger man, said Baker, I'd take $10 million, go in there and turn this thing around. On another occasion, Resavi and Baker were going over the accounts of the bank and the security affiliate. This was after the crash. Mr. Baker ventured the secretary. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if you had sold out in 1929? With cash, you could now buy back twice as much. If Baker felt a murderous impulse, he suppressed it. Frankie said, if I had started selling things, I would have lost my position years ago. You see, you never know when you reach the top. But Mr. Baker, was se, he you know more than any of these things, more about these swings than anybody else, said Baker. No, Frank, you can't know, because every time is different. Yeah, every time is different. So this is the building we're in number two Wall Street, formerly the head of the greatest bank in the city of New York, a bank that uh, somehow missed its way. Baker died. And you know, Evan, after Baker's death, around the time of Baker's death, the building was condemned. This is about 1931, at the low web of almost everything. The building was condemned. It was tilting and listing. And, um, so they, uh, they were afraid one day that the safe would be frozen by the shifting of the ground, the old granite safe. So the building was knocked down and a new one was put up. And uh, the building and the bank seemed to be on the finest, firmest footing except it had no branches. It uh, did a business that no one really seemed to need. It was in the business of safety, and the safety of banking system was about to be nationalized, or effectively nationalized by the advent of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So the first national bank, the famously safe, the famously well-capitalized, if somewhat predictably bullish bank, uh, finally was uh, kind of without uh, a business model that really worked in the modern day. So Evan, uh, let that be a lesson to you. I'm not sure of the lesson. Well, maybe there is a lesson from the present-day uh, Vanguard. I read um, cannot keep up with the influx of the billions. A billion dollars a day is coming into Vanguard. They can't staff the call center fast enough to greet the new investors and to process their checks. Maybe this too will pass. Ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for listening. I hope you will join us as readers. In any case, you will hear from Evan and me uh, very soon, and it will be our delight to talk to you. Until next time, goodbye.